Big election cycle for moderates. What do Tuesday's results mean for the Jewish community? Welcome back to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Jared Bernstein, alongside my co-pilot, Rich Goldberg. Rich, a big week for moderates in both parties, with wins in Ohio, Florida, Buffalo, and New York City, and of course, the big win in Virginia. We've got a great guest, writer and Twitter savant, Yair Rosenberg, is here with us. Shalom Aleichem, Malachi Asharet, Malachi Elyon. Mi Melech, Malachi Amlachim, Akadosh Baruch Hu. Shalom Aleichem, Malachi Asharet, Yair Rosenberg is a journalist covering the intersection between politics, culture, and religion. After a decade with Tablet Magazine, Yair is joining The Atlantic, where he will write a subscriber newsletter called, get it, The Deep Shtetl. He has covered just about every topic from elections to baseball to comic books. Yair is also a leader in Jewish Twitter, where he has gained a reputation for trolling anti-Semites and manages to fit it in all alongside a thriving underground music career, which we are pleased to include on this week's episode. Yair, let's start with Deborah Lipstadt. Jewish Insider's Capitol Hill reporter Mark Rod reported this week that Senate Republicans are delaying our confirmation over past tweets. And interestingly enough, you tweeted about this, calling it reprehensible. What's so bad about Chairman Rich saying he wants more time to review her tweets? I think it's important to understand that uh, there isn't really a serious case against Deborah Lipstadt's qualifications for this post um, right after uh it came out that the Republicans were holding up a confirmation. The federations and the ADL and the Orthodox Union all got together and wrote a letter saying, you got to confirm Deborah Lipstadt, you got to give her the hearing and that she's eminently qualified. Um, this is not a person who plays favorites. She has a long history of calling out anti-Semitism across the spectrum. Um, notably, she was quite vocal about, for example, Jeremy Corbyn and the, and the Labor Party. Um, there isn't really a serious case to be made uh, that she's a partisan actor in this uh Case, but there is a serious case to be made that the Republicans are playing politics with yet another Biden nominee and trying to embarrass the president by not confirming his nominees, by finding reasons to be upset or angry about them and start fights about it. But in this case, you know, the Jews are the ones who suffer. They get caught in the crossfire where people are playing partisan politics with an important post uh, that deals with a very real problem right now in the world. To be fair, she did defend an ad that compared Trump to the Nazis. She said nothing when Biden used Nazi comparisons in 2020, saying Trump was, quote, sort of like Goebbels. She, so she has put her own partisanship ahead of principles in, in those cases, at least in the 2020 election. She's a, Well, I, I do think you're getting on an important point, which is I think what sticks in the craw of certain Republicans is that Deborah Lipstadt was critical of Trump in the same level of language and condemnation of uh, his rhetoric that she used when she talked about, say, Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and that ticks people off depending on what community and where they sit 
uh, in different ways, right? There were people who were very upset about her because she'll say that, you know, the same stuff about Jeremy Corbyn, and then she'll turn around and say, and when Trump says, oh, you won't give me money because you Jews want to own your own politician, or Trump, as you guys know, goes on a radio show and says Congress own, was owned by Israel, right? She'll call that anti-Semitic. Right. She will basically speak the same way about everybody and at the same level of uh, of condemnation. Um, and that's kind of what you want. Um, you want someone who's willing to say it and she'll say it no matter who it gets angry. Um, you don't have to agree with every single thing she says. I don't uh, to recognize that she's trying to be fair and that she very often says things that uh, are politically inconvenient. If you were trying to get a post where everyone would just nod and say, oh, you're a really nice person. Yeah, please go take the job. Um, and I think that there's absolutely the case there, that she was uh, very critical of Donald Trump, um, and in particular when it came to how we talked about Jews. Um, but I think that, that was fair. Uh, definitely fair to criticize the president when he says things. Definitely fair to call out all sides. It seems unfair to defend an ad put out by a political organization that uses Nazi imagery, evokes the Nazis and the Holocaust to attack a sitting president or anybody in U.S. politics unless they are actually Nazis and and in favor of a Holocaust. I think we've talked about Nazi imagery in this country for a long time and its unacceptable use in politics from both sides of the aisle. So I, I think in that case, that's not exactly calling out President Trump for anti-Semitism. That's using your politics of saying, yeah, I, I'm okay with an ad that invokes Nazi imagery in an election. Like that doesn't sound right. Well, this gets us to the, the the very fun question. Yeah, this gets us to the very fun question of the acceptability of uh, Nazi uh, analogies in American politics, and then a secondary question, which is the advisability. And I, I probably agree with you, Rich, that uh, Nazi analogies in general, whether or not they actually are correct, because sometimes they might be. Um, like one could make a case for, oh so-and-so is lying on a very, like, consistently and on a basis that riles up ethnic and religious tensions, um, and thus they resemble Goebbels or something like that. But once you make uh, a Nazi analogy, the debate almost always becomes about the analogy and not the really bad thing that you are actually trying to condemn. Uh, so it's very rare that you'll see me, say, make a Nazi analogy. Um, and I do think that they are obviously overused in our politics. Um, and as I said, I don't have to agree with everything uh, Professor Lestat has said. Uh, to think that she is a very, very highly qualified person for this job, who has written tremendous books on this subject, who has successfully sued Holocaust deniers. Well, actually, she was sued by a Holocaust denier and then won. Um, she has done a tremendous amount of good on this issue. Um, and that's why you have like the ADL, the Jewish Federations, and the Orthodox Union, who in other situations, it might be hard to get everybody on the same page saying, this is someone we trust. Uh, at a certain point, it's up to the Republicans to sort of say, we're going to listen to the Jewish community and actually say this person they feel represents their interests, and therefore we're going to let them through. Um, and I think what's going on here, again, is really it's a partisan thing, right? It's partly embarrassed Biden. It's partly because Lipstadt herself had criticized Trump. But when it comes down to her qualifications for this job, right, it, I think it's very, very difficult to dispute that she's a really good choice. In fact, she's a lot better. I think Republicans could have gotten, they could have done a lot worse, right? They could have gotten a whole bunch of other people uh, that I think they'd have been much more upset about. Um, yeah, but I, I do think that there is something to be said for, personally, I, I don't use Nazi analogies most of the time because it's just, it's a distraction from whatever issue it is you're really trying to talk about. So, so speaking of Twitter, you're a prominent voice in the world of Jewish Twitter. 
Um, and I guess the question we've... That's a really terrible thing to say to somebody. <laughs> uh, I don't know why you'd say that in public forum. Um, but so is Rich Goldberg. So, you know, I'm happy to have both, you know, two... Not, two I, do not have the, I do not have the Twitter influence that you have. Um, I wish, I only wish, one day. Um, I'll have I, I'll have I. So, you know, we've seen uh, a couple of nominees now um, really run into difficulty because of their prior tweets. Um, most notably, we saw Neera Tandon, uh, her nomination, you know, really uh, take a turn for the worse, primarily over some of the things she said on Twitter. We saw Rich's good friend Colin Call, on the other hand, uh, we saw him actually survive a, a storm based on his tweets. And I guess the question is, you know, in the year 2021, should people be, a, be held accountable for every single thing they've said on Twitter? Um, as two guys who may or may not, you know, serve in, you know, in future administrations, you know, it's something that Rich and I grapple with, frankly. And what do you think about it? I do think that people uh, could stand to tweet a lot less, and myself included. It's, you know, something I'm perpetually working on. I think in general, Twitter's not a very reflective medium. We often instantly react uh, to things on it. And then if we spent a little more time thinking about it, we might say something different. Um, Thus, I also don't think that you should always assume that what you see on Twitter is the best representation of the person. Um, And so... You know, I don't think it's necessary, but I think once you are nominated to a public position, it is absolutely going to become fair game. Um, I think that um, we should, there's a difference between being fair game and saying we're going to find the worst possible spin on the worst possible tweet and then hang that around your head forever and prevent you from ever getting a job versus saying we honestly want to know how do you feel about this issue, standing away from Twitter, right, not in the heat of the moment. Um and I think that that matters. Yeah, but I, I think that uh, Twitter is is a, is, a, is not a net positive uh, for a lot of our political discourse these days. Um, and that doesn't mean it can't be used for good things. I just think it takes more effort to use Twitter for good than it does to use it for bad uh, in a lot of s- situations. Um, yeah. And so, you know, so like that's an example of like, it's very clear if you were to take it back to where we started, right? If you look at Deborah Lipset's scholarship and her body of work and the incredible things she's done and the people, the bullies she stood up to, you know, the anti-Semites that she's gone to battle with, that like she is a great person for this job. And the fact that she might have one or two tweets that tick some people off, right? Is that really what you are we really going would everyone want to be judged by that standard? Um, right, even if you granted the most worst possible interpretation of those tweets, which I don't grant, right? But if you did. Um, I just don't think it's a healthy way to run uh, a government or a democracy or a public discourse. Um, and uh, that being said, we continue to do it, right? And it continues to work. Um, at some point, I would like to see society come up with some new norms uh, that let, let us to, uh, to value these things differently and uh, treat people a little bit more as human beings and less as uh, a line of text that we can yank from context. I think it's just, it's so easy to fire off a tweet, right? Like if, you, if you're in the advocacy space of policy, uh, as as some of the people that Jared mentioned have been, or you're in the political space, you engage in a campaign, you become a campaign surrogate, which means you're going to be asked to attack the opposition and people who are attacking your campaign. Um, you know, in the old days, you would have been asked, would you put out a statement and a press release and the press release will go out in your name and you're examining it, thinking, oh, well, I don't know what the repercussions of this. You know, now it's like 140 characters, 280 characters, get it out the door, uh, content's flowing at me all the time, I got to respond, you know, and then people just fire up their tweets and it comes back at them. And yeah, Jared, like, 
I guarantee you there will be a center or two, if I'm ever blessed with a nomination, who will hold up my nomination over tweets. I, I have no doubt. Well, Rich, I, I, can no be doubt. The, I will be the Democrat who will stand up and say, while I disagree with pretty much everything Rich Goldberg stands for, he is a stand-up guy and he's a mensch oh, and he's doing you. it for the right thank reason. You. So, and, you know. and, and, maybe, and maybe I will even get profiled into the shtetl. The deep shtetl. The deep shtetl. The deep shtetl. We want to get to it. We want to get to it. Um, I, I, by the way, I would just note, because we didn't, I didn't finish this, the ADL did condemn that ad from the Jewish Democratic Council of America, even if Deborah Libstadt didn't. However, I take your point on her many, many, many years of scholarship and, and fighting on these issues uh, and her qualifications. But I, I do want to talk about Twitter for one more moment, because... On this social media platform and, and others, it has seen the rise, the explosion of anti-Semitic content, uh, you know, which you've talked about, you've written about, you, you've engaged on uh, yourself. Campaign against anti-Semitism in the UK said Twitter's anti-Semitism policies are not working. Regularly report anti-Semitic content to Twitter. I think they found that only 40% of content that's reported actually gets removed tweets like except Hitler was right and all vaccines were created by Jews to control the population of the Goyim and Hitler was right is in like that one's true is in like 17,000 tweets you know just the quote Hitler was right from one week in May and so I guess the question is if you were running Twitter what what would you do Uh, yeah well isn't it great that I don't have to (laughs) make these decisions um First of all, I think it's worth acknowledging that these are hard questions. Sometimes people present them as easy questions. Um, and as much as I'm pretty critical of the broader social media industrial complex, Facebook, Twitter, all of these people, um, it's not because there are easy solutions uh, to these issues. Um, I think that Twitter actually is trying harder than some of these other platforms to try to figure out how to make their platform healthier. You may have noticed recently they started rolling out all sorts of features to enable users to uh, stop themselves from getting mobbed, to prevent themselves from getting you know abused or trolled in different ways. So if you are suddenly getting hundreds and hundreds say, and this happens to me on occasion, I say, I say something that ticks off the wrong corner of uh, the internet and suddenly I have a bunch of people uh, who might be on Twitter or might have been directed by you know some people on 4chan just lots of Nazi stuff, um, very angry at something I said, you can click a button and stop them from being able to do that to you for like 24 hours or whatever amount of time you want. Um, you can basically for, you know, take yourself out of that circulation. And that's something that is impressive. And there's no such features that really uh, have yet been integrated into places like Facebook, where they're trying to think about how can we you know, enhance user experience so you can decide what you see and what you don't. Um, I am wary of letting you know random... Uh, you know, tech CEOs decide what we can and can't see on the internet. Because even if you think that they make the right decision once, who's to say they'll make it again? I think very often the decisions that get made at the top have to do with what's socially acceptable or socially uncomfortable for, uh, you know, people in Silicon Valley in their, you know, dinner parties. Uh, So it's, you know, it it looks bad that Donald Trump is on your platform saying that he won the election when he didn't and inciting people to, uh, you know, even to violence about it. Um, So, you know, that's embarrassing. And at a certain point, it's so embarrassing, you have to take him off the platform. But the fact that someone does that, you know, in, you know, some random Asian country or somewhere in Africa, that doesn't make any headlines. Nobody is embarrassed about that. No one hears about that uh, at a Silicon Valley dinner party. And so no one deals with that elsewhere. Um, And so I feel there's a a lot of selectivity. um, And I I don't think that uh, these are the sorts of people who should be making those decisions. Um, So I think that like then it becomes a question of who does make those decisions. 
Um, I think that there might be some sort of like there's the sort of thing where perhaps there's a you know, it's something that we as a society have to determine and people have to come up with laws and legislation and vote on those things. Uh, But not like you know, grandstanding on Twitter about Twitter, like many politicians do these days, but actually seriously think through what these sites are for, uh, what we want on them. I think there's a reasonable case to be made that we should ban all heads of state from Twitter, right? Uh, like that, they're like, it's not a huge value add for them being on there. Um, but there's a lot of damage that can happen from misunderstandings or the wrong person having the wrong button. Um, there are all sorts of content neutral rules we might come up with, I think, that could improve these platforms that wouldn't be going after one group or another. Um, you know, but again, I don't pretend that these are easy questions and I don't pretend that I have the solution on one foot. Yeah. And, you know, to follow that up, uh, speaking of dinner parties at my Shabbos table last Friday night, there was a very spirited conversation about the role and the responsibility of these platforms, because on the one hand, they, they democratize news. They did not let the, the heads of the big five papers and the big six networks determine what, you know, what we got to hear, what we got to discuss. And so, you know, Five years ago, seven years ago, Twitter and Facebook saved democracy because it let all these other voices that were always held down. So, I mean, maybe we could talk a little bit more about that because uh, do we need editors on Facebook and Twitter? So I think that's that's part of the conversation. I think that like up until, say, 2016 and before Trump, uh, I think among uh, definitely among liberals, but even among uh, non-liberals, there was this sense that social media had sort of democratized the marketplace of ideas. It was allowing uh, a lot more free discourse and letting more people be heard. Um, and it was generally a good thing and that would, it would help, you know, expand democracy and bring it to places where it wasn't. Uh, and then people started to realize that, you know, this platform that allows lots of people to be heard who weren't and people to organize who used to feel alone, right, that can help people organize uh, for incredible causes uh, and moral crusades. And it can also allow racists to organize and find each other and do all sorts of terrible things, right? If you're a bunch of Nazis and people in your parents' basement scattered across America, you probably feel alone and you're writing random internet comments or writing letters to the editor that don't get printed. Fast forward through social media, and now you can all network and you can show up in real life in Charlottesville and chant Jews will not replace us with people who feel the same. Um, and that's just like every technology. These things can be used uh, for good or bad. Uh, you can take fire and use it you know, to warm your house or to burn it down. Um, and in the end, uh, there's no solution to this that doesn't involve uh, training people to use the technology responsibly. Um, Derek Thompson of The Atlantic recently wrote a piece about Instagram where he said we should start thinking about social media like alcohol, where we establish all sorts of social norms around the use of this substance. Um, like, oh, take away the keys. You've had too many. Um, all sorts of different things that we do and we talk and the way we you know, deal with this um, that lead to differences and changes in behavior when we use it. Um, we also regulate alcohol. So similarly, you can regulate something because you recognize it has a social value, but it also has negative potentialities. And you can build bottom-up social norms where people understand, oh, you need to put away the phone, right? Like that's not good for you, right? Um, And parents can decide like at what age do you drink? At what age do you start using certain social media platforms? Like all of that sort of stuff, the conversation we have about alcohol, I think we would be well-served having it about social media as well. Let's get to your big news. Uh, We have seen you writing for Tablet Magazine for many years. Is where you've risen to prominence, not just on Twitter, of course. Uh, And you're taking your talents uh, south to the Atlantic, staying in New York, we're told. But you'll be writing a new newsletter called, as Jared uh, let it out of the bag, The Deep Shtetl at the Atlantic. Uh, How did this come about, and uh, why are you making the move? 
Hold on one second. I just got to tell you, that's the best name for, for anything I've ever heard. And so, like, not, you know, I read the the first one and I want to hear more about it, but just in naming alone. I, I have to also admit fabulous, that I didn't get fabulous. it until so, just now. I, I've like, I've been looking at it. I've been like, deep shit, oh, that's, that's cute. Yeah. And now I just got in this conversation for some reason. It just clicked. I was like, oh, it's like deep state. Okay. I get it now. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a little slow. I'm a slow on the uptake. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was basically just desperate to avoid naming it uh, after something that was dependent on a pun that mispronounced my name, like fresh year, year on air. You would be amazed at how many of these sorts of things get suggested to me as titles for stuff. And I was like, no, this is just going to incentivize everyone to continue mispronouncing my name. Uh, so then I need to come up with something that, that works that isn't anything like that. Um, and so, you know, this one, this one is a good one. Um, and... Yeah, so what, what ended up happening is just that The Atlantic, as uh, people who follow media news knows, they wanted to launch a newsletter platform, um, and they wanted to bring in outside writers to basically run newsletters under the un- Atlantic umbrella, uh, and they wanted a real wide variety of perspectives and ideas, um, and I was one of the people they asked, um, and you know, I'd already been on the side from my regular work at Tablet doing a newsletter on Substack, which some of your listeners may know. And that was just sort of a place where I put little odds and ends and things that didn't fit into my work at Tablet or, you know, were not uh, article length stuff and so on. Um, And they were like, well, why don't you come and do that, you know, but in a much more, uh, much broader way uh, for us. And I've been at Tablet for 10 years, almost 10 years. And, you know, had an incredible experience. I wrote about it a little bit on social media when uh, we announced uh, the move. Um, but, you know, this is a very exciting opportunity. It's an opportunity to reach a lot more people um, uh, about these issues and topics. Um, and also it's just an opportunity for me to try something new um, because, you know, when you do something for a very long time, at some point you're like, okay, now I want to try something else. Um, as you mentioned, I'm still going to, like, there are certain pieces that are always tablet pieces. They're, they're always going to be meant uh, for, like, Jewish publications and this will still pop up uh, from time to time in tablet. Um, but I'm looking forward to uh, being able to reach not just I wrote as I wrote in like the first newsletter. I'm not writing for the Jews. I'm writing from the Jews. And the distinction is is that um, it's not just content that Jewish people can appreciate. It's content saying that the Jewish experience goes back thousands of years, um, and our ideas, our texts, our traditions, our our you know lived experience has something that can teach. Uh, many people beyond our own community, which is true, of course, of many communities. Um, and I'm hoping to bring at least that uh, to the conversation. In the announcement, you mentioned that you're going to tell stories, including one about Albert Einstein. Yes. 1944, Hebrew University. Yes. And we know you wrote your th- senior thesis about Albert Einstein. Good research. What is one we, thing? You know, we, we, do, we, we do some pretty we good have a crack research team. Show. I will tell you. Yeah. Yeah, we have a, we have a crack research team. Um, so uh, what's one thing that listeners should know about Albert Einstein that they don't know? Um, his last speech uh, was a uh, Yom Ha'atzma'ut, Israeli Independence Day speech to be aired by like the, the major networks on television live. Um, um, it was a defense of Israel, an explanation of why it mattered and so on. Um, and he died a few days before he was supposed to deliver it. So we only have the draft. Um, that is a really crazy fact that is, in fact, true. Um, and also relevant to the debates over the character of Einstein's Zionism, which definitely evolved over time uh, from a more cultural Zionism to a reluctant nationalism, um, where he was always extremely critical uh, of excesses of nationalism and is the Israeli nation state, but also believed that it was absolutely necessary. Um, 
And that's something that we'll, we'll definitely get into as I write these articles on this series about Einstein and his relationship uh, with uh, a particular eclectic Orthodox rabbi over 20 years, uh, in which they talked about everything from the Talmud to Zionism to God. Uh, and that's where that, that, that reference in my newsletter comes from. And uh, there are a bunch of articles in the works on this. On this All side. right. You also write the following uh, in your kickoff. I've built bots to expose white supremacists masquerading as Jews, black folks, and other minorities on Twitter. I compose and sing my own original Jewish music. Okay, now you're welcome to sing for us if you'd like. I mean, we, we can make time for that. Uh, but also very interested in knowing more about the bots you've built. Yeah, I wrote about this for the New York Times a very long time ago. Um, this was like shortly after the 2016 election. Um, and I had... As those of you who remember, there were a tremendous amount of uh, uh, alt-right and other types, Nazi-adjacent trolls, uh, who decided to make Twitter their playground during the 2016 election. Um, and the ADL did a study which Jewish commentators and journalists got the most abuse. And I came in at number two behind uh, Ben Shapiro. Um, and so, you know, it was a failure because my parents didn't raise me to be number two. Uh, but, you know. We'll try again next time. Um, and so I'm like sitting around thinking I'm just number two. What can I do to get to number one? And uh, saying, you know, most of these trolls, they're kind of sad and they're kind of pathetic. And they, they, they sit there and they send you anonymous, uh, you know, abuse that doesn't really matter. Um, but there was a small group of these trolls that, I, that are actually pernicious. Um, and these are the ones that uh, disguise who they are. Um, and actually pretend to be Jewish people or black people or Muslims on the platform. And it's actually very easy to do. Uh, you just go on Google search and you say, search for like Jewish rabbi. And then you get a picture of someone who looks very Jewish. Maybe they're wearing a talit or maybe they're wearing a big giant yarmulke and have a big beard. And you take that image and you make it your avatar. You give yourself a Jewish name and you're off to the races. And you go and you start inserting yourselves into conversations with high-profile users that have lots of eyeballs on them, and you start saying horrifically offensive and bigoted things uh, while in your Jew face. Um, and you could do this as a woman in hijab, right? You can do this as a black guy, and you can do it as a religious Jew. That's These are basically very easy ones to try. Um, and the whole point of this is think about it from the perspective of a racist. What do you want if you're a racist? You want more people to hate the same people you hate. And what better way to make that happen than by dressing up as the people you hate and doing hateful things so that more people unawares will hate them. Um, so it's actually quite insidious, uh, unlike most of the trolling that you see on these platforms. Um, and so I, I wanted to know, is there something we could do about it? Because Twitter was totally culturally incompetent and didn't have a clue that this was even going on, let alone how to deal with it. And the average user, understandably, didn't even think that this was something they should be watching out for. They don't, like, reverse Google image search the avatars of people who pop up on Twitter. Um, and so this is obviously before people also had thought about, like, you know, foreign governments buying Twitter bots. This is not a thing people were really thinking about. Um, so I tweeted out to my followers, you know, the most insidious kinds of these trolls is the impersonator trolls who pretend to be Jews in order to, you know, do bigoted things. Um, would there be a way to, like, build a Twitter bot that automatically replied and, to and exposed these trolls every time they tried to insert themselves into a conversation? And one of my followers, a developer in San Francisco named Neil Chandra, who I'd never met in person, wrote back and said, yeah, I could probably do that over the weekend. And I was like, that sounds cool. Let's do that. <laughs> and so I gave him a database of a whole bunch of these people because I'd encountered a lot of them, right? And I like crowdsourced some more and people saying, is this one, is this one? And you figure out basically by like reverse image searching and doing all sorts of things like, oh, this used to be, you know, Heil Hitler 1998, but then it changed to being Rabbi, you know, Pressburg, you know, two weeks ago, right? Like obviously you do things like this and you figure out who these people are. And then we created this a golem for the internet, as I call it, where 
What it did was, every time one of these trolls tried to reply to someone pretending to be a Jew, the bot would come in and reply to that person and said, you know, hey, FYI, you've heard of fake news. Well, now you've met fake Jews. This guy isn't real. He's not worth your time. Don't fall for his shtick. Um, and it was extremely effective. It prevented a lot of people from wasting a lot of time and getting very aggravated and upset. Um, and it prevented a lot of people from being misled. If you want to know the epilogue of this and why I have distrust of technology companies to uh, handle these issues, is that the end of this story is that the Twitter bot gets banned by Twitter because it got mass reported by the Nazi accounts for harassing them on Twitter, uh, which is correct. The bot was, in fact, replying to a bunch of people who didn't want to be replied to, saying things they didn't want to hear. And even when we blo they blocked the bot, it continued to reply to the people they were talking to, so it didn't matter that they blocked it. Um, and so, yes, in a vacuum, this definitely looks like abuse. In practice, they're the abusive users, and the bot was exposing them. And note, we didn't kick them off the platform. Nobody got banned. It was a pure free speech intervention that did the exact job it needed to do, which was expose abusive users on the platform. Uh, but Twitter didn't understand this, so they, they banned the bot. The ADL talked to them. They unbanned the bot. And then some months later, they banned the bot again and refused to put it back on. Yeah, can we move on to the recent recent elections? Um, because it it seems to me, and uh, I haven't really kind of really dug through the the cross tabs and whatnot, but that the extremists lost this week, right? Uh, moderates uh, kind of pretty much ran the table with a few notable exceptions. Uh, socialists on the far left did not in Ohio and New York. I mean, you saw in even in Buffalo where a much maligned multi term incumbent uh, won a write in. Uh, a write-in campaign against the Demer, you know, the, the the candidate that Chuck Schumer himself endorsed. Uh, so we saw that. But I guess my question is: at the base level, were the results good for the Jewish community? I mean, I you know, I don't know. I mean, good. as my grandmother would say, is it people good love for the to Jews? ask questions like that, and I don't have good answers to them because uh, you'd have to look down the line. Uh, you can't predict the future. I, I'm a reporter. I report on the present. Um, you know. I thought there were interesting Jewish little carve-outs uh, uh, from these different elections, like people have pointed out that uh, the vote in Lakewood, uh, New Jersey, where there are a lot of Orthodox Jews, um, swung dramatically towards uh, the Democratic candidate from what it was during the general election, where it went overwhelmingly for Trump. And this is likely the result of the VOD of Lakewood endorsing Phil Murphy. Um, and I think there's something to be understood from that and uh, that people should pay attention to, which is Phil Murphy built a real relationship and other members of his administration built a real relationship with the Orthodox community um, in New Jersey. Um, they went after um, towns, uh, townships and areas and groups that were basically trying to pass discriminatory laws to keep Orthodox Jews out of their areas. Um, he and his attorney general, uh, uh, Grewal, uh, who recently stepped down, um, they really just went to bat for the Orthodox Jewish community. And it's a, and that's something that's not to be taken for granted because it's the kind of anti-Semitism that people don't usually pay attention to. Uh, they're basically, if anti-Semitism can't be latched onto a grand political narrative in our partisan discourse, it gets ignored. So if you're... Uh, if it can't be pinned on white supremacists and fit into the left-wing narrative, it gets ignored by some. And if it can't be... Uh, cast as, you know, anti-Israel, but really anti-Semitic, uh, which tends to pop up on the right, right, then it gets ignored, right? Orthodox Jews is neither of those things, right? Orthodox Jews getting beaten up in the street somewhere or people passing discriminatory laws and saying you can't move into our neighborhoods. That's none of those things. It's easy to overlook. It doesn't get headlines. Um, and the fact that uh, they paid attention to this, in the end, it was good politics and good policy. Um, and hopefully more people look at that and learn from that. 
Um, I think that you can look at New York and see some of these issues haven't been handled as well, though actually Tish James recently uh, went after also um, areas in New York that were trying to do the same thing to Orthodox Jews. Um, and I think people should pay attention to that because I think I'm sure that uh, Orthodox Jewish voters pay attention to it. And in places where these things are competitive, uh, that can really matter in elections. And, and do you think that it, we can read something from the fact that Republicans who did not cozy up to Donald Trump had a pretty good go of it? I mean, you look in Virginia, uh, there was a lot of pressure for the governor-elect to campaign with Trump. By many accounts, it made Donald Trump crazy that uh, he wanted nothing to do with Donald Trump, and he pulls it out. Um, or is that a very sort of case-specific Terry McAuliffe being, you know, having some very serious limitations as a candidate? Uh, what do you make of that? Was it? Was, are we reading too much into the Trump angle on all this, or not enough, or just right? Well, I think the big question of the Republican Party uh, going forward has been: uh, Can they energize the mass movement that Trump brought to the polls without being Trump? Right? Is that even possible? And there was a significant doubt that that it was possible. It was basically we need Trump at the top of the ticket to get people to turn out and to you know actually overwhelm certain advantages in certain part of the country that the uh, that the opposing party has. Um, and what it appears is that Glenn Youngkin managed to figure out how to do this without Trump at the top of the ticket. He turned out the, and not only did he do that, right, it's can you do that, but if you have Trump at the top of the ticket, you automatically turn off a whole bunch of other people, uh, including traditional Republican voters. Um, so can you turn out the Trump base without Trump at the top and the alienation of other key constituencies for a Republican victory? And Youngkin managed to do both of those things. He found that way to do it. And there's lots of People can be debating forever what exactly accomplished it, how much is attributable to Biden's own standing and less to Youngkin himself. Um, all of that stuff, I'm not going to give you a dispositive answer because I honestly don't know. Um, but it did show that it's totally possible to win without Trump at the top of the ticket. That being said, it's sort of hypothetical because, yeah, Trump's not going to be at the top of the ticket in a 2020 right. ele election. He won't be at the top of the ticket in a 2022 election. But if he runs again in 2024, I don't see anyone stopping him. Uh, so it's just because the Republicans, in theory, could run a better campaign than Trump himself could run, um, like, you know, with some form of Trumpism without Trump, if you call it, um, doesn't mean it's actually in any way a really realistic prospect. <laughs> Um, but that being right. said, you know, there's a lot of this talk. What's going to happen in 2024? Um, think about where we were like three years ago, right? You know, there was no pandemic. People weren't doing things, living out of their homes. Um, you know, you didn't have, you know, uh, you know, an insurrection on the Capitol. You know, you, I, I could get to count off. Benjamin Netanyahu was still prime minister forever, right? Wasn't ousted by a bizarro coalition that includes everyone from Naftali Bennett to an Arab party, right? So the idea that one can actually have any idea what's going to be happening in three years from now, I just think is hilarious. Um, and I have absolutely no idea. And I can't predict. What I can say is that for one night, the Republicans seem to figure out how to sort of energize all aspects of their base all at once uh, in different ways in order to get the, the turnout they needed uh, to win in like, you know, a competitive race. Um, whether or not they could ever duplicate that, um, I have no idea. I want to step back and ask your views. I, I know you don't speak for the Jewish community or to the Jewish community, um, but uh, I'd like to speak about the Jewish community because, you know, you're somebody who has written about it for a long time. What is the state of the American Jewish community in your view uh, I know that is a massive question, so I'll break it down in a couple parts. The first being, uh, I don't know if you saw, Jeffrey Solomon has a piece out in Sapir entitled Saving Jewish Organizations mm -hmm. from Themselves. Very interesting piece. I think everybody should read it. 
a whole number of hundred-year-old organizations created for singular objectives, struggling to evolve, struggling to be dynamic today. You know, let, let's start with that. What's your view of the mainstream institutional Jewish community of America today? It's a huge, huge, question. huge. Um, you have two minutes. Because you have two minutes. No, just kidding. Huge. You should. You should. You should answer the the, the number four, Rich. No, you know what? I, I I know like. <laughs> I mean, Sorry. Sometimes you like to ask specific questions, but when you have somebody like you on, I actually am just curious what you would say to that. I mean, I think that the American Jewish organizational landscape was built, uh, you know, some decades back where organizational life was where life was at for everyone, not just the Jews. It was for the Christians and everybody else. And uh, the Jews did a really good job of building institutions. And if you talk, when I report on other religious communities, they are tremendously envious of the organized structure of the Jewish community and the ability that we have to sort of fund our own initiatives. Um, They're tremendously envious of Jewish uh, ethnic and religious media uh, because you just don't have that kind of stuff uh, in many other places. Um, there are comparables, but they're just not as many, um, and they're not as uh, high of salience and not as good or not, or not as funded. So you have people who would want to do it, but they don't have the money. Um, and, uh, you know, so there's, I think sometimes we see the glass as, uh, you know, from our own perspective, whereas like the heyday, the golden age was, you know, at some point, probably before even I was born. Um, but there's also the context. Um, and I think the context is still that these organizations do remarkable things that many communities would love to be able to do. Um, there is the issue of can you evolve for a more uh, decentralized, um, more individualistic age um, where people are less likely to give dues to organizations and more likely to you know, crowdfund individual candidates or causes that they particularly identify with, which is very different than the sort of organizational model. Um, it's also something that synagogues uh, are dealing with. Um, you know, some independent minyan versus synagogues, um, all of these sorts of questions. Um, so I look at it and say, like, you know, it's clear that it's a moment of it's a moment of transition and that things are going to evolve. And some organizations will over time, they will crumble or become we've seen this already. Some organizations become sort of just names, organizations in name only, but others continue to do really remarkable work. And I think new stuff will come along. Um uh, it just won't necessarily look like what we've seen before. And I think a lot of those people actually will come out of the organized Jewish community. They will just be the young people who say, well, I know what my generation is, that it's going to look a little bit different. Um, and, I, you know, hopefully the the Jewish community will support those people. I think, like, you look, like, look at things like, uh, you know, Safaria, uh, if you guys are familiar, which is this uh, remarkable web hub, crowd-sourced um, home base for Jewish texts in both Hebrew and English and Aramaic and you can it's like an incredible resource that didn't exist before and it's open source so literally anybody can take it and bootstrap it to their own project and this has been done many times um, and they just keep adding more and more content I think that's also the Jewish community and it's been funded by groups in the organized Jewish community um, and they're in some ways ahead of like digital um, storage and uh, digital accessibility and making uh, things you know democratizing knowledge than many other companies that are trying to do that in a secular space. Um, and so I think when you look at a lot of places, these things are already, they're already around and they're already starting. Um, you know, you, we mentioned earlier that I'm doing Jewish music. Um, there are people out there doing really interesting stuff in the cultural space uh, for Jews. People are doing really interesting stuff in the Jewish music space, Jewish artistic space. There are people very interested in making Jewish films and movies that are actually really good. Um, and obviously some of that is helped along by Israel and collaborations with Israel. Um, so I think that, uh, yeah, I don't think American Jewish life is going to look in 20 years like it looked 20 years ago. Um, but I don't think like that disappears and then there's just wreckage. 
um, I think that there's a lot of stuff growing. Um, I don't know, you know, if I was a, you know, if I was, you know, a, a much better venture capitalist, I could tell you who to bet on. Um, like I would bet on Safaria, right? Like there are a few things I might say, right? But there's, uh, but there's a lot. Um, and that's one of the fun things about being a reporter on this community is that I very often come across and get the chance to sort of dive into that stuff, right? I can write a whole piece on the translation of Harry Potter into Yiddish, which also ties into a sort of revival of Yiddish as something that is uh, something of interest to people outside of, say, the Hasidic community. Um, and there are quite a lot of people who, because Harry Potter was translated into Yiddish, said, hey, I'll give it a go. Let me try to learn that. And I had interest in it, and now I'm going to do more of it. Um, and when you have, you know, someone like uh, Dara Horns writing her book, People of Dead Jews, uh, but part of her project is also to get people to start returning to, you know, Jewish texts uh, that aren't, you know, the sort of sanitized stuff, the stories that have been told about Jews, but like read the Yiddish texts, right? She did her doctorate in Yiddish, right? There's a lot of this stuff and this conversation happening, and you find it in all sorts of interesting ways. Um, so, yes, yeah, so when I look at the Jewish community, that's what I see. I see a transition, but I, it's, not, it's not like stuff just dying. I think there's a lot of stuff growing. So I'm reminded of a of a really interesting story. A very when I worked in the White House, a very senior Jew in the Obama administration once looked at me and said, "Jared, you know, we're two percent of the population, but we're twenty percent of the meetings." Well, one last question before uh, we get into our lightning round: uh, the BDS movement seems to be trying to redefine itself. This is my view. Uh, it, sort of a new branding exercise that makes them sound more mainstream, more acceptable. We're not boycotting Israel. We're just boycotting the settlements. That's sort of the, the mantra now, settlement boycotts. And we've seen this played out with the Ben and Jerry's debate. In, in my view, Ben and Jerry's is absolutely engaged in BDS, but there is disagreement about that. Why is it that there is a divide in the Jewish community over what BDS is and whether or not we are going to be against it? So I don't think the BDS movement is rebranding itself that way. I think they were actually quite angry at Ben and Jerry's. They tried to get Ben and Jerry's to divest from all of Israel. That was the demand of the Vermont BDS group that had been pressuring Ben and Jerry's for years. Um, that actually was what I believe the Ben and Jerry's you know citizen board tried to do. Uh, but then the corporate overlord said, "No, that's not what we're going to do. We're just going to pull out of the West Bank." Um, and when you then they interviewed Ben and Jerry's, the founders themselves, who had not made the initial decision but were willing to defend it, what they were willing to defend was saying, we would not sell in the West Bank, but we value our ties to Israel. Um, you know, that's one of the first places they set up a foreign shop. It might have been the first place. Um, and so um, that's actually, the BDS movement really wants to boycott Tel Aviv, in other words. They don't just want to boycott um, the West Bank. Um, and so if people get really behind this idea of boycotting the West Bank, you could look at it as a BDS victory, but it's certainly not what, say, Omar Barghouti wants. Um, and it doesn't get them where they want to go because they, the BDS movement, certainly the leadership, um, wants Israel gone. And you can't boycott only part of, you know, Israel's territory or Israeli, in this case, Israeli occupied territory um, and succeed in that. Um, and so this is why groups like Jason are comfortable with the Ben and Jerry's boycott because they see it as a targeted um, act that is designed to stop settlements or occupation, but keep Israel. Um, whereas the BDS movement looks at it and says, well, if that happens, then Israel's still around and we haven't reversed 1948 and thus it's a failure. Um, so I think that that's actually what's going on. But I think what you're spawning is that for the BDS movement to have any form of success, it has to moderate, right? The extreme version of the BDS movement just doesn't have purchase. Um, no one's really willing to defend the extreme version. Um, and that, but that is actually what, if you ask Omar Barghouti BDS is about, he's very open about well, it. So, so, um, I'll I'll and so you can I'll see push, that as still bad. I'll push back on you for the following yeah. reasons. I think two reasons. Number one, the facts of the Ben and Jerry's situation are not 
what you just described. It's what has been spun by the company. Okay. Unilever wants you to believe that. And honestly, like I've been amazed how many Jewish publications, news have led with headlines and continue to have leads where they say exactly that. But when you actually look at the facts, there's one licensee for Ben and Jerry's in all of Israel. And it's Ben and Jerry's Israel. Avi Zinger is his name. And they negotiated with him and talked to him for months saying you have to cut off you know all your distribution in the Palestinian areas and he said I don't understand you know the Palestinians buy ice cream they want this ice cream they love this ice cream like I can't just like cut off like the entire West Bank from from and by the way it's illegal under Israeli law for me to do that so I so I can't do that and, and so they said well then we're gonna cut your license off and so they released this statement ultimately saying, oh, we, we are going to look for ways to stay in Israel, but we're only boycotting the settlements, quote unquote. But that's false. That's false. End of 2022, they are no longer licensed in the state of Israel, period, for anything. And you're denying ice cream to the Palestinians, not in settlements, in Ramallah, at the gas stations that they go to. So uh, I do think that everybody's sort of gotten behind, oh, well, that's reasonable, that's reasonable, even though they're boycotting the state of Israel, which is why the state laws have all applied to them. The second piece here is I see what's happening on Capitol Hill with BDS supporters. They, you know, a lot of them, a couple of them might might still say they're for BDS, but a lot of them have started tucking their BDS support into conditioning aid for Israel. And that's sort of the new BDS. And, and of course, ultimately, if any of this, whether you're in a quote-unquote settlement boycott, right, using quote-unquote 1967 lines, meaning Jews and East Jerusalem are not allowed to, you know, Jews at the Temple Mount are not allowed to be, not, not allowed to be there. You, can't, you know, you must be Yudin Ryan in Jerusalem. Oh, and by the way, like you want Israel to have indefensible borders so that they collapse, you know, security-wise. I mean, it's very smart of them to try to hone in and try to create this wedge in the Jewish community of, okay, we're just for a settlements boycott. That the, the end result is going to be the same. Do you really think that the end result of a settlement boycott is the same as a, a boycott of the entire state of Israel? That if people will say, you know, I don't want to sell my products in, uh, you know, the West Bank, that somehow that's going to make Israel collapse? I don't think that's true. You can oppose it, but it's not going to do that. If if you had a true if you had a true settlement boycott, if you had a true settlement boycott, I might agree with you. In other words, you have a brick and mortar shop. And, you know, if Ben and Jerry's had scoop shops in Israel, for example, right, and they had one in Tel Aviv and they had one in Jerusalem, they said, we're just not, we're going to close our scoop shop in Ariel. We're going to close our scoop shop in Malayah Dimim. That would be what they're describing. But that's not what they're describing. They don't have scoop shops in Israel. They have a distributor. They have one licensee. And that's been the case for all of these types of boycotts where they're, they're not actually physically there. They're inflicting pressure on a company like SodaStream or somebody else to withdraw their operations entirely. And when they say, no, I, I can't withdraw operations, that's just not physically how my business works. They say, okay, we're boycotting the company. We're going to put them on a list. Well, SodaStream, this is an example of the difference between BDS and a settlement boycott because they BDS uh, came along and said, well, look, SodaStream's got a factory right um, in the West Bank, and therefore you should boycott them. And eventually, SodaStream did, in fact, get rid of the factory. Um, and notice you don't hear about SodaStream anymore. Um, but it's not because if you Google that BDS isn't angry about SodaStream. It's just that nobody listens to them. Um, but they actually then came up with new reasons why you should boycott it because BDS believes you should boycott everyone. Um, so that, I think, is a fair distinction. I think distinction holds. Um, and then as he said, you can debate over whether this is an effective tactic, whether it's actually going to accomplish what people say it's going to accomplish. Um, 
but I think it's very clear that there is this distinction, um, and that people of good faith absolutely do make this distinction. But they, but, but um, when, when they yeah, say settlement boycott, saying, like don't, you they, said, don't they mean the 1967 lines? They don't actually mean settlement. To them, you know, the 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 hotel is a settlement. Yes, they are, they mean. So this is an interesting question, right? Which is exactly, I think that uh, when you start getting into the granularity of the settlement boycott, I think you'll find that some people will say, I'm perfectly comfortable boycotting things in the West Bank, but I wouldn't boycott something in Jerusalem, which is, you know, the cradle of Jewish civilization. And the idea that you could in some way boycott Jews for being there just seems particularly problematic uh, and even odious. Um, So like, you don't have to have a, like a settlement boycott that is you know, literally all the things. And that is absolutely arguments that I think people do and can make. Um, like when the United Nations gets up there and, uh, you know, passes resolutions which refuse to make any reference whatsoever to the historic Jewish connection to, say, the Temple Mount. Um, not that they mentioned the Muslim connection, because of course you should, um, but that you won't mention the Jewish connection. I mean, everyone knows what you're doing, right? And it's despicable. Um, and so people will have different, you know, will say that there's a big difference between, say, you know, some you know, uh, thing in Jerusalem versus something in, you know, Ali or Shiloh, like some of these more far-flung places um, where, you know, lots of people for very good reason think that Israel shouldn't be there. Um, and you could still completely understand these Jewish historical and religious connection to those lands and say, but you know what, practically speaking, um, the Palestinians also need a place to live and you can't just keep displacing people uh, and taking it for yourself. Um, and, you know, frankly, so like you're getting some of my sympathies here, obviously. Um, but I also think it's a perfectly reasonable, defensible distinction. Um, and I think, yes, you're right. There can be more distinctions within it. Um, and I think people should be pressed on those distinctions because I think the the more targeted a policy, the better, the more effective it is. And BDS's policy is like, let's boycott Israel and everything to do with Israel out of existence. And I think that's terrible policy. And I think it's immoral. Um, and I think that, you know, the lack of their ability to make distinctions is precisely If everybody the came with their own map and said, here's my map. And if you're selling in this area of area C or area B or area A or whatever it is, you know, then uh, that's my boycott, right? Well, I guess we're going to have like everybody that's now negotiating Middle East peace on behalf of the parties through a settlement boycott, quote unquote. But that's not really what they're doing, right? They're just saying I'm for a settlement boycott. And what it means as a movement is I want Israel to withdraw to the 1967 lines. I don't even know anything about this conflict, but I'm on board this movement and all this colonial stuff and all this like anti-Zionism rhetoric, and I'm on board. So settlement boycott, which is actually just BDS rebranded. Jared, you had a question. Well, and that's listen, and listen. Well, listen. To be fair, right? Um, you know, Ben and Jerry are are you could you can knock them for their support backing up their their advisory committee's decision, um, but it was not their decision. Uh, they 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 profess to be Zionists, right? They profess to be supporters of the state of Israel, but they have a I think a much more uh, nuanced uh, version. You know, they do make the distinction. Frankly, if you sat down, if you sat Ben and Jerry in a room and talked to them about what they're actually opposed to, I don't think that they're going to say it's all nineteen pre nineteen sixty seven borders. I think they are opposed to uh, you know settlements. In the more far-flung places where where it's clear that that Palestinians need to have a, a place to live, but I think they, I don't think you would hear them um, repudiate or deny the, the Jewish connection to Jerusalem and many of the holiest sites, right? And so I think to Yari's point, like we we they, they are I think Jared, we need they a are conversation they, about they consider this in to, their boycott the occupied Palestinian territories includes the Temple Mount, includes East Jerusalem. 
That is what they insisted Avi Zinger do, cut off all distribution anywhere on the, uh, across the 1967 Green Line. So, so I, I, I just on this case of the Ben and Jerry's, it's, it, it is BDS. It is. They're trying to get away with some PR spin at Unilever headquarters, but it's not working. Unfortunately, for a lot of press, it is working. But from the letter of the law, when they investigate it, the states have determined, in fact, they are committing BDS. Well, that's because the BDS laws, uh, not all of them, but some of them implicate uh, also the West Bank. Right, they were written such that if you boycott the West Bank, you automatically violate the BDS laws. Other BDS laws do not include the West Bank, and you don't. But I don't think that tells you one way or the other because that's not doesn't tell you that it's BDS because it violated these laws. The laws have decided that we don't like boycotts anywhere, um, and like you could boycott literally just you know um, Evyatar, which has absolutely no business being there. Right, Google it, folks, um, and you would violate these laws technically. Um, and like that, not, not all the BDS laws, some of them, right? And some of them, and that's the same thing. So I don't know if that's a really good way to decide what BDS is or isn't. Um, but I do think, like, I, I just think that, uh, you know, first of all, I think there's a tremendous amount of effort and energy that's been spent on the on, on, on Ben & Jerry's, which is, oh, I find it frankly hilarious. I don't think it's incredibly consequential one way or the other. And I, I, I wonder, like, I, if I were the Israeli government, um, in a weird way, it's to their benefit that this is what everyone is talking about because it is so silly and so largely in the broader sense inconsequential. Um, meanwhile, like Naftali Bennett is flying off to France to try to paper over uh, concerns about the NSO group, right? Uh, the Israeli spyware, you know, and, uh, you know, so we say digital weapons industry that has overreached in various ways, uh, largely under the Netanyahu administration. Um, and now Bennett is sort of trying to play cleanup for that. And the Biden administration just blacklisted uh, the NSO and a like like-minded group um, in Israel. Um, these are much more consequential and serious things that are going on. And the more people talk about Ben and Jerry's and ice cream, probably the better uh, it, it is for uh, for uh, you know Naftali Bennett who's trying to just clean all this stuff up. Um, you know, so I just find it interesting, like what gets salience. I think it's probably because it like trends on social media, frankly, um, and it people all people eat ice cream, but very few people can really think about it and wrap their heads around you know spyware and digital weapons and stuff like that. But uh, in terms of stuff that's really consequential that people should be talking about, I think there are there are bigger ones that uh, that we can do. I, I think there's a lot of issues to talk about, but I think this is very important because you have a major corporation, a massive corporation in Unilever. That has major uh, institutional investors. One of them being the Scandinavian pension, fund, Norwegian pension fund, that is, you know, leading the BDS efforts, pressuring the companies that they're investing in to commit BDS. You're seeing this throughout Europe, uh, and and for Unilever to take a step and try to excuse itself for executing a BDS action, which it says, um, and is going to potentially be a domino effect. And I think you're seeing a strong pushback to say, no, we have these BDS laws for a reason. When I drafted and negotiated the first BDS law in Illinois, and we drafted the language to include all territories controlled by Israel, the reason why that's in there is not because we are taking uh, any sort of you know, position on what the conflict's resolution should be or what the borders of Israel or, or a future state of Palestine should be. It's because you know the other side is just trying to use economic weapons to pressure Israel to make concessions outside of a direct negotiation with the Palestinians. And so they are using weapons of war, in this case, economic warfare, 
to try to pressure Israel into making decisions that are not potentially in Israel's security interests. And so you can you can try to simplify and say, oh, it's they've gone too far with these laws and it's a West Bank boycott, it's a settlement boycott that they're trying to stop. No, that's not what it is. BDS is in all forms when you use economic warfare against the state of Israel to achieve a political objectives. And when they when if you're targeting the 1967 Green Line, territories controlled by Israel, you're trying to force them to make a political concession outside of direct negotiations. And that is wrong, and we should defend our ally. All right. With, with that, uh, if you want to respond to that, we can, but I want to... I think we covered cover it. it. That was good. Stuff where that was good. Have... That was probably okay, one of the best right, conversations good, good, good. So, uh, two Jews have had on BDS in a long time. Three Jews. Uh, I was there to Jews. watch. Three Jews. Uh, Three Jews. Oh, okay. Is this okay. thing on? Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. Here. First of our lightning ground questions. Um, what is your favorite or best kosher deli or kosher style deli you've been to in the United States of America? Ah, you just restricted me to the United States of America because I was going to uh, to already start talking about Montreal, you know, smoked meats and stuff. Um, but uh, it's a good question. You know, should I should I flatter the audience and say Charbar? Um, Charbar is a great place. Um, I, I, I've had so many so, because when I would before now, of course, we know the culture situation in DC has opened up quite a bit. Um, but back when I would come and take visits there for work, uh, and I want to meet people over meals, there was literally only one place I could take them. Uh, so I would literally just camp in Charbar and have multiple meals. Uh, uh, it was uh, not good for my. Uh, my constitution, but very good for my taste buds. Um, but I mean, here in New York, um, a place that I'm glad is still open post-pandemic uh, is uh, Mr. Broadway, um, which is not too far from uh, the tablet offices. Um, it's also a place that I've really enjoyed taking uh, my Muslim friends um, who keep halal um, uh, and those who for whom kosher shkita is acceptable. And uh, because they seem to absolutely love it. Uh, so I have definitely, definitely up their Muslim clientele. Um, and so that's definitely up there. Um, uh, I live not too far these days from uh, a branch of Izzy's Smokehouse, um, which is not a deli, uh, but uh, is fantastic. It's okay, hey, but it's fabulous. It's fabulous. Yeah. That's what Jared, when are you taking yes. me there? <laughs> when you get on an airplane to come to New York. All right, next question. Uh, you're obviously starting your own newsletter, but I'm sure you consume a lot of newsletters already. What are three newsletters you read every day? And I hope the first Jewish answer is Jewish Insider. Every single day. <laughs> okay. Obviously. <laughs> great. I mean, great. I don't even have to pander. It's actually true. Um, I'm one of those weirdos who like doesn't actually subscribe to newsletters in their inbox so much. I turn them into RSS feeds and read them in my uh, like Feedly, which is an RSS reader. Uh, so now I have to sort of think about it because like Mish stop with you. Really them, are like, like a know, tech. You're like a very headlines. tech guy. You're like a very tech. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, wow. I remember you, that. You I used to see those little buttons and things saying RSS, and I was like, I don't know what that is, but I'm not touching that. Well, think about it this way. If you do not like algorithms on social media telling you what you should and shouldn't see and deciding what tweets you see and what Facebook posts you see and you don't, even though you followed certain things that you'd think you would see the things you followed, then RSS is the only way to consume anything useful on the internet because it just lets you create your own table of contents and then it just loads everything into one place and you never miss anything that you didn't choose actively to skip. Uh, this is something I should honestly write about um, because that's why I do it. Um, I don't want anyone else controlling what I read and I pick something and I say I want to read it. Well, I want it to show up. Um, so let's think. I want one um, of those. I want, I want to do RSS uh, now. I like that. I want to read the I want to read the deep shadow piece about this. Yes. So here's my, well, I should write it. It's, 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 a, it's a chapter for a book, um, how to use the internet better. Okay. Um, 
And so, yeah, so it's it, the, the thing, the, the client I use is actually called Feedly, uh, F-E-E-D-L-Y, and uh, it's very easy to use if anybody wants to. I'm going to go look at it right now, and I'm going to look and say, what do I read? Um, <laughs> and give you some examples. Um, I read a lot of stuff. Um, someone who's recently stopped blogging um, because he's working on other projects, but uh, who I really, really have learned a lot from, whether I agree or disagree, is uh, Alan Jacobs. Uh, who is a professor at Baylor. He's a professor of the humanities. Um, he recently wrote a book called Breaking Bread with the Dead that I highly recommend, among other books he's written. Um, and he's just a wonderful teacher. He opens your eyes to many different kinds of literature from different cultures. He has eclectic politics because he's a religious Christian, um, but his politics are very hard to uh, pin down on a map. Um, and he has critiques of uh, all different parts of our political spectrum that I think are uh, very interesting uh, and make me think a lot better about those things. Uh, he wrote a biography of C.S. Lewis. He's got a lot of stuff that he has done. Um, and I just find he directs me to so many interesting things that I otherwise wouldn't find. Um, so that's, that's, uh, I'm trying to give you guys things that are not the things that people are already reading, uh, because what, what good is that? Um, let's see, you know, someone who I really enjoy reading, and this is on a similar line that just reminds me of it is, uh, I really enjoy reading David French and he has a, he has one newsletter he does for the dispatch, which often is on like religious and ethical themes. And I just feel like that's a voice that's not common in our discourse. We don't have religious, moral, or ethical exhortation, uh, in our public political discourse. And I think we could use a lot more of it. Um, maybe that's the, the rabbi's kid in me speaking, um, but certainly like someone who used to do this was uh, Jonathan Sachs, uh, and he used to bring that element uh, to his uh, writing on contemporary issues, uh, and I often feel like uh, we don't have enough of that, um, and I think uh, that you know David is actually now also doing a newsletter of another sort at The Atlantic with us. Um, but like I always admired how he would bring that to bear. I'm not as good at doing that. I wish I could, but also because doing it, you don't want to sound preachy. You don't want to sound better than other people. It's really hard to do well, uh, but uh, that's that's someone also. So uh, apparently uh, what I'm giving you is uh, I, I read uh, Christians uh, on, on our politics. Okay. Um, hey. <laughs> so, <laughs> I also read a lot about baseball right. and video yeah. games, but I feel like your readers right. are less let, interested let, in those things. Well, you and never one, know. One last one. What, what's your favorite? Ask the question, Rich. Go for it. What's your favorite Jewish song of all time? Oh, wow. That's an impossible question, man. There are many, many tunes, but like, I mean, you can't go wrong uh, with Lecha Dodi. Um, there are just so mm, many amazing That's a good one. Tunes. I like that. Uh, if you like travel that. like I do, if you travel like I do as a reporter, this is a project I would have loved to do. Someone should do. Go travel to all these, you know, tiny Jewish communities all over the world. I've been in India and other places. They all have another Lecha Dodi tune. Right, and someone should go and literally just record every single one of them, especially since some of these communities may not be there in 10, 20 years. Right, and sort of capture every single one of those in a database because it's just, it's such a universal. Um, and there are so many different ways people have, uh, have understood it and performed it. Um, and so, you know, in my own, uh, you know, upcoming Jewish music album, there is a Lechado D. There's actually two. There's a slow and there's a fast. Because, as you know, many Jews, when they sing it in synagogue, they change the tune halfway through from a more slow tune to a faster tune. So I have both. But I, I collect these tunes. They're just really remarkable. Um, and so, yeah, that's definitely uh, up there on my, on my Hall of Fame list. Gary Rosenberg, thank you so much for joining us. This was an amazing conversation. Uh, really appreciate the time. And we look forward to the Deep Shtetl. Everybody should sign up for it right after they sign up for uh, being a subscriber to the Limited Liability Podcast. But as soon as you've done that, you can sign up for the Deep Shtetl. Thank you, guys. Shemechan, who 
Jared, a uh, wonderful interview there. Uh, I think a lot of content to digest, uh, a lot of discussion uh, to go over. I think the BDS conversation was pretty good. I don't think I've had a robust conversation like that in a while. Uh, healthy for our listeners uh, to hear all perspectives and to flush that out. Um, I would note, of course, uh, if anybody thought that I was implying during that conversation that Male Ademim or Ariel were to be considered settlements by me. That is not the case. Um, I was just thinking of where would actually a scoop shop be uh, over the green line in their perception. Uh, But obviously, uh, there are no scoop shops there. Uh, Anyways, thank you for listening. Once again, great to have you here on. If you like the show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because that's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening.